2016 has been a great year for FX Medicine. We've celebrated the first anniversary of our dedicated website, fxmedicine.com.au. And we're also very honoured and proud to be the recipients of the Complementary Medicines Australia CMA Award for Most Outstanding Contribution to Research, Education and Training. We love bringing you relevant content which is designed to improve safety and clinical proficiency. We're so very grateful for your continued support and please do let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future by dropping us a line on fxmedicine.com.au, Twitter or Facebook. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me from Sydney, Australia, is Justin Sinclair, who's a practicing naturopath and a consultant and lecturer specialising in herbal medicine and phytochemistry. Justin spent much of his younger years travelling and learning from different cultures about their ethno-pharmacological uses of various plants, which led him to formal study in the CAM field in his 20s. After completing a Bachelor of Health Sciences in Naturopathy with the University of New England and Diploma Level Studies in Herbal Medicine, Naturopathy and Nutrition with ACNT in 2002, he went on to study the Master of Herbal Medicines with Sydney University's Faculty of Pharmacy in graduating in 2004. Key areas of study in this program were analytical phytochemistry, pharmacognosy, toxicology, pharmaceutical technology and medicinal botany. He has published on the topics of pain management and herb drug interactions in peer-reviewed texts and has held executive director and examiner positions on the board of directors for the National Herbalist Association of Australia, that's the NHAA. Justin has had a research interest in medicinal cannabis for the past six years, in particular the endocannabinoid system, constituent synergy, that is the entourage effect, novel drug delivery systems for cannabinoids and terpenes, and the use of medicinal cannabis for pain, anxiety, and immunomodulation. And we'll be talking about more interesting insights that he has for us today. And welcome, Justin, to FX Medicine. Thanks very much, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Justin, today we're going to be delving into the myths and misconceptions around cannabis. So I guess to start off with... We, we won't go back into the historical use because you eloquently explained that in another podcast, in a previous podcast. So let's go back to the age of Aquarius, the 1960s or thereabouts, Woodstock and free love. Why was marijuana so prevalent around that era? And what was the sequelae from this and, and why? You know, I, I, I think uh, it was a number of factors, Andrew. Um, socially, I think cannabis aligned well with the uh, the hippie and counterculture movement. Uh, it was freely available. It was easy to grow, uh, but also a well-known illicit drug at the time since alcohol prohibition had ended. So using it was, I think, uh, an, an open rebellion, mm. you know, kind of like a raised middle finger to the government in both the USA and Australia, uh, which was at the time sending that generation against their will to go fight in a war that they didn't want to be involved in. Um I think furthermore, I think it aligned with the the, the hippie, uh, if you will, mentality of nonviolence. Uh, I mean, generally utilizing this plant as an ethnogen or a, a, a social drug, all you want to do is you know sit down, uh, sit on a uh, eat and, and sit down and watch the Muppets or something. Uh, you certainly don't want to uh, or, or hear of cannabis smoking soccer hooligans going on rampages. You know that's uh, much more the legal alcohol. So I think it aligned really well with that principle of nonviolence. And I think it also, and perhaps most of all, uh, was about demonstrating uh, a really important facet uh, about one's adult sovereignty. Um, you know, that is that you have a right to decide what you take into your own body as long as it does not hurt others or pose a risk to others. And I, and I think the great uh, philosopher and, and psychonaut Terence McKenna uh, had a really amazing quote about that. Um, and, I, and if I can remember it, it was something like, you can wander around uh, within the sanctioned playpen of ordinary consciousness. We have got some intoxicants over here if you want to mess yourself up. You know, we've got scotch and some tobacco, some red meat, sugar, and a little TV. 
but the boundary-dissolving hallucinogens that connect you with your fellow man and nature um, are, there, are somehow forbidden. So this, this is an outrage. It's a sign of cultural immaturity and the fact that we tolerate it as a sign that we're living in a society as uh, oppressed as any society in the past. And I think that even though that quote was actually specifically about hallucinogenics, which is you know far and away uh, what we're talking about today, but the quote still highlights that discussion about adult sovereignty. And, and it's a very interesting question and, and philosophical debate. I mean, who has the right to decide what you do to your own body if it does not hurt another? Um, can treatments or medications be forced upon you against your will, assuming that you're compass mentis? Um, do you actually own your own body and mind? Because if others can dictate what you do or do not do to it, is it actually yours? I mean, it's a pretty heavy topic to be sure, and, and, and perhaps maybe a discussion for another day over a walk in the forest, mate. So I guess this goes into the uh, a sort of um, cultural responsibility, if you like, because you know there's this concept that marijuana is a gateway drug. So it's fine if you only want to get into your body, but then if it's going to lead to other things and maybe involve other people or uh, subject other people to criminal activity, then that's where they see the concern. So I've got to ask the question, is marijuana a gateway drug? Well, I think that's an interesting one, um, and and probably a better question to dis- to start with um, is if it can cause dependence, because right. I think that's the whole the whole guise is that you become dependent on it, and then suddenly it's not enough for you, so you've got to actually escalate and keep going up. So, if I talk about dependence for a while, I can certainly answer that question on on whether or not it's a, a gateway drug at all, if if you'd like. Yeah, well, let's go into that because my issue with marijuana being a gateway drug, like we'll talk about this in a sec, but my issue with it is, well, okay, doesn't coffee combine with smoking and smoking often leads to marijuana smoking and so couldn't you then say coffee is a gateway drug? So so you could argue that point, it'd be flippant. But anyway, so let's talk further about drug dependence and its issues. Yeah, no problem. I mean... One of the things um, that I just want to point out uh, from the start with any of the things that we're going to actually discuss today, all of these myths and misconceptions, um, is that when we look at these in the evidence, that the discussions around them is based on um, the cannabis in the literature um, is illicitly grown street cannabis. And that's something that we need to make really, really clear because I want the listener to understand that this is a completely different animal altogether to the strains that can be used uh, for medicinal cannabis. Yeah. So, you know, through selective breeding, um, the, the recreational or cannabis being used socially uh, has been grown to basically accentuate really high THC levels to, to get the end user high, and that largely neglected the full profile uh, of the phytochemicals within the plant, whereas that's not the goal of medicinal cannabis necessarily at all. So just as we as I go through these, I just want the... the um, Listeners to remember that the statistics that we're talking about have nothing to do with medicinal cannabis, and they had everything to do with illicit, uh, um, you know, street cannabis. Yeah. So there's definitely evidence uh, within the literature for cannabis being a, a drug of dependence, and and I did spend quite a lot lot of time going through it and and uh, looking at the various studies which have been mm. coming, you know, being published since uh, late 70s and early 80s. But I found this really, really good study um, that was done by Anthony, uh, Anthony, sorry, uh, Warner and Kessler, um, and it was entitled "Comparative Epidemiology of Dependence on Tobacco, Alcohol, Controlled Substances, and Inhalants." And the reason I really liked this study um, was because basically uh, it had so many people in it. It, it was um, reviewed uh, all sorts of different studies that had already been done and was uh, based on findings from the National Comorbidity Survey within the United States. And so it actually surveyed over 8,000 people in right. the USA between the ages of about 15 and 54 mm-hmm. on, drug, uh, on drug use. And the whole idea of the study was basically uh, designed to assess the patterns of dependence. And what, what was really interesting about the study is that it did show that cannabis can uh, cause dependency. Um, but we need to look at some of the statistics that they raised. And so what was more importantly uh, uh, voiced in this, I think, was that 24% of the study respondents uh, actually had a history of dependence, or one in four, to tobacco. Uh, yeah. 14% or one in seven reported dependence to alcohol. 
And this was all classified uh, as addiction or dependence by uh, the DSM. So, you know, the American Psychiatric Association's publication. So the, the statistics on cannabis within this subset was uh, around between uh, about 4%. So a little over four percent. So that represents about six times less than that of tobacco. Mm. Um, and I and I found another study which uh, said it could be as high as nine percent. So the thing that I find quite interesting about this discussion is that um, we're talking here about an illicit drug. Yeah. Um, but here's both tobacco and alcohol, which are legally obtainable, um, and they're not illicit substances, and they have a much higher uh, rate of dependency. So I think there's other factors, too, um, that need to come into uh, the, the discussion about dependency. Yeah. So we look at things like uh, individual variability of the patient and why the, ca- why the cannabis may have been being utilized. Mm. I mean, for example, if someone was suffering from uh, chronic intractable pain or a neuropathic pain and it was non-responsive to medical pharmaceutical treatment and they were actually utilizing uh, an illicit form of cannabis for the management of that condition on a daily basis... Um, then I think that that's acceptable uh, to, to understand that they could have dependence on it because they're using it uh, for, for actually a medicinal purpose. Yeah. Um, but I guess the other thing we need to consider too is that as an illicit substance, cannabis is also one of the cheapest to obtain uh, in comparison to other things like cocaine and heroin, which interestingly did show much lower uh, dependency rates. So I think that uh, needed to be uh, considered when when that was looked at. And so this you know, feeds in uh, really well into the discussion of, of whether or not it's a gateway drug. Yeah. But uh, I think just looking at the drug dependence and, and the sequelae, if you like, or the ramifications of that drug dependence, it's certainly one of the least quote unquote harmful when you look at the damage that's done by alcohol to not just those people who use the drug, but those people who come in contact with users of the drug. And oh, we're talking absolutely. obviously about violence here. Um, Absolutely, completely agree with it you. It sure as and hell that, doesn't happen with marijuana. Well, no, God. I mean, when was the last time you heard of a uh, uh, someone, you know, as I've said previously, I think someone smoking a joint and going home and, and going on a rampage. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, it just doesn't happen. Maybe if somebody but stopped I, them from getting into the paddle pops, you know, maybe. <laughs> it could well be. You never know what could happen there. I mean, but, but, but I think, you know, that, that discussion is really, really important because when we start looking at um, – public health and mm. we start looking at the ramifications. Everyone at the moment is, is currently, you know, concerned, oh, we're going to be uh, using cannabis medicinally and what are the ramifications for this? Um, but they're actually blind uh, to what's right in front of their face right now. Yeah. I mean, we've had these statistics, you know, thrown at us already. In, in 1999, we've had almost 20,000 Australians die of tobacco-related causes of death. Uh, almost, you know, 5,000 Australians die every year due to alcohol-related disease or, or, or uh, motor vehicle accidents. We've got uh, our, our chronic addiction with sugar, uh, which is, you know, uh, escalating our, our diabetic uh, uh, populations. These are things that not only have a direct relationship with cause of death and mortality, but actually more, con- you know, just as concerning, not more, con- more concerning necessarily, but just as concerning is this reality that it's a, a significant, um, you know, significantly magnifies these comorbidities and quality of life. Mm. Uh, and then we, we extrapolate from there and the cost to the healthcare system for us to manage people because of the, you know, the, the sequelae of, uh, of um, your, your classic alcohol abuse and, and tobacco uh, use is, is staggering. Yes, I mean, the, the, the cost to the healthcare system is staggering. So for, for people to be sitting there dragging their feet, using that as an argument, mm. um, they, they need to actually look at what's currently legally available. I just had a thought then about um, maybe, you know, those people that are concerned about medical cannabis use might have issues because there's so many different types available. But then I thought, hang on, well, let's talk about alcohol. You get the differences or at least the seeming different effects between, say, champagne and rum, you know, which commonly is touted as, you know, making quite a few people punchy. Um, yeah. whereas you don't normally get that with champagne. Um, that, <laughs> at least it's not associated yeah, but- with that. But there's a vast array of these alcohol-containing products. Each one of them is different in their makeup, um, vastly different, yet we don't seem to worry about that because it seems to be accepted on the basis that they all contain one constituent that's common, but in varying degrees. So, again, I don't see a difference between that 
and different species, strains, types of growing, um, uh, growing practices. I don't see that as being any different from alcohol. Yeah, it's a really well-considered point. I mean, I know of many guys that, uh, that the last thing you want to do is feed them rum because it just turns them into a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, they show a level of violence that, that you know from a normally placid person. Mm. And I think that's a, it's a really good point is that everyone um, that's currently listening to the medicinal cannabis debate is only thinking of it. Uh, from what they previously know. And the reality is that within Australia and many parts of the world, it's only ever been an illicit substance. And yeah. so they're automatically biased. Yeah. Um, they're automatically biased. They have no experience, no clinical experience. Um, they may have some practical experience, whether they admit it or not. But the reality is, is that that is a, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, a uh, a type of cannabis that is grown for a specific outcome and that is not medicinal cannabis whatsoever. So um, from that uh, discussion that we were previously having about dependence, we can now kind of you know, broach the topic of whether cannabis is a, a gateway drug. So that idea of cannabis being a gateway drug is obviously not new. Um, and not surprisingly, there is uh, quite a, a bit of conflicting evidence in, in the uh, you know, the scientific evidence out there in the literature. So, I mean, when we look at what defines a gateway drug, uh, it's basically a, a drug uh, that is defined as uh, it, it can lead to the use of harder, more addictive or, or dangerous drugs. And some of the examples of these, I guess, are things like, you know, cocaine, heroin and, and methamphetamines. So I think, firstly, we need to consider that as cannabis is obtained from the black market due to its illegality. Um, it obviously stands to reason that other illicit drugs of a harder nature are probably going to be uh, obtainable from a similar source. So this kind of simple association uh, is actually quite difficult to then remove as a confounding variable in some of those uh, study results. But I started looking through uh, uh, some of the evidence for, for cannabis being a gateway drug, and of course I found some positive ones, but I did find this really interesting and very pertinent um, uh, paper by, uh, by Amanda Ryman, uh, and this was published in um, Harm Reduction Journal. So it was basically stating that cannabis is a substitute for alcohol and other drugs. And so what was really interesting about this is that in California, a state that's obviously legalized uh, medical cannabis dispensaries and, and patients can get access um, to medicinal cannabis uh, from those dispensaries from getting a, a card basically from an authorized healthcare provider. This study was based in, in California, so it is actually focusing a little bit more not on illicit, it's actually focusing on medicinal cannabis. Yeah. So the study conducted um, was in uh, California in 2008, and it was uh, looking at about 350 different registered medicinal cannabis users. Um, and what they actually found in the statistics is that cannabis uh, may actually exist uh, or serve as an exit drug and not a gateway drug at all. And so I found that really interesting. And so the statistics that um, were generated from this was that 40% of the respondents reported using cannabis as a substitute for alcohol. Now, I, th I find that interesting mm. because we've already just discussed that alcohol has a higher dependency rate. Um, then 26% used it as a, as a substitute for other illicit drugs. So we're considering harder drugs or drugs of a harder nature. And 66% used it as a substitution for prescription medication. So I think, you know, that, that then went on and they, they broke that um, subset down and, and basically found that 65% of the patients that use medicinal cannabis um, did so because of the propensity for less side effects. Yeah. Uh, 34% uh, used it uh, for less withdrawal effects. So we're literally talking about uh, illicit and potentially pharmaceutical. Yep. Uh, and 57% felt uh, that it provided better symptom management for their uh, medical condition. So that being said, of course, we, we're not going to sit there and say that uh, you, know, you, you want to stop or endorse uh, stopping pharmaceutical medications by any, uh, you know, by any length of the imagination. No, but, but, if, you've, but um, if you've got this huge issue with opioid medication where mm, even medicos are under duress now to, to really watch their, their opioid prescriptions and yeah, indeed no. pharmacists are, uh, are under sort of a moral obligation to look at um, overuse or you know continued high use of opioid medications because they have a rebound effect. Absolutely. So, for instance, in, in, in headaches and migraines, um, you're actually causing the thing that you were initially treating by using continuing to use that medication. So if people can swap over to something that doesn't have that effect, yeah. that's a good thing. 
I think I completely agree. And I, I mean, if we're going to start comparing statistics here, I mean, the CDC, the, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, mm. they, they posted in 2010 that over 16,000 people died uh, from pharmaceutically prescribed opioid analgesics. Yeah. So that's, that's roughly about 45 people a day. Yeah. Um, and, and that o- opioid overdoses have quadrupled from the year 2000 to 2014. Now, I know that they're American statistics, but let's look at some Australian ones. Um, in Australia, the rise of addiction to prescription opiates um, has been particularly noteworthy and, and devastating. I mean, there was a, a paper that said between 2002 and 2009, the amount of oxycodone prescribed in Australia increased 180%. Yeah. I mean, uh, in the late 90s, I think it was, hospitalizations due to opioid poisoning uh, were largely based on heroin. Yeah. But by 2008, prescription opioids accounted for 80% of opioid-related hospitalizations. Mm. Um, in Victoria, uh, which actually I think out of all of the states does, a, does an excellent um breakdown of, of, of monitoring drugs and, and uh, you know, side effects, they actually found that um, call-outs uh, from ambulance uh, because of opioid analgesics uh, in, I think it was the years 2012 to 2013, increased significantly um, from years prior, and that there was, a, I think, 55% increase in the metropolitan Melbourne area. Um, and there's a 21% increase in regional Victoria. So it's it's not just something that's a city thing. This is something that's still occurring uh, mm. out in mm. other areas. So that amount of oxycodone nationally being prescribed by doctors in Australia, I mean, it's something like 95 kilos in 1999, and it's now 1,270 kilos by 2008, which re- is representative of about a 13-fold increase. Mm. That's massive. So, I mean, when we start to think about that, um, and it's not just the opioids. I mean, the opiates we, of course, have uh, a problem with. Uh, but, you know, there's benzodiazepines as well. And, and I guess the thing that kind of upsets me uh, when it comes to this, and, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't make me chuckle a little. I guess I, I kind of lie there. It makes me palm my face in staggered disbelief. Yeah. Um, is that pharmacists and doctors are sitting here worried about diversion and dependence with cannabis um, when this you know, we have this current problem with opiates and benzos. And and, and the thing that I worry about is that they sit there and and talk about, you know, these checks and balances and checks and balances that we need for cannabis. But these these opiates and benzos have passed all those checks and balances um, for for safety and quality and efficacy. Um, Yet uh, we have this problem. And I mean, you know, it's kind of like glass houses and stones. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it is a real dogma. And mm-hmm. I and I don't I don't understand it when when you consider that there's already examples out there of variants where all of their arguments are sort of nullified. That's what I don't oh, yeah. understand. Yeah. Oh, look, there was even more interesting. There was a paper actually published. I think it was last year by a guy called Barkhuber, and he actually published uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And he he clearly demonstrated that in states um, where medicinal cannabis laws in the United States. Um, are operating, that it's associated with a significantly lower state-level opioid overdose mortality rate. Um, so that actually supports the findings presented in the Ryman statistics. Um, so, you know, that it supports that cannabis is actually potentially an exit drug and not a gateway drug at all. Mm. So I think we really need to, um, you know, look at the evidence a little bit more closely. Uh, and that, that evidence that's coming out now for medicinal cannabis is certainly quite encouraging, and we can't get it confused with what has been done on the illicit, uh, uh, on illicit uh, cannabis uh, yeah. in the past. And we need to treat them as separate, uh, as separate entities. Just on a closing point with regards to marijuana as a gateway drug, do you mm-hmm. see any evidence of this in states, well, the Australian Capital Territory and South Australia, the state, um, where marijuana for personal use is considered a misdemeanor, still illegal, but a misdemeanor, not yeah. a felony. So I just, yeah. I actually found this um, thing and it said um, that as of June the 2nd, 2015, they mm-hmm. were reducing the amount of cannabis that one could be found with from five plants down to two on what's mm-hmm. called the Simple Cannabis Offence Notice, or a SCON. Um, yeah. So they're reducing that effect, and it also excludes totally all hydroponically or artificially cultivated cannabis. So that, to me, is mm-hmm. a good thing, because that's what they mm-hmm. lace all the all the bad stuff with. But um, yeah. it seems to be it seems to be still a a um, a misdemeanor, not a felony. Mm. 
Is there any evidence in Canberra and A- oh, sorry, in ACT and, and South Australia that there is a gateway issue there with regards to other drug use? Not that I've come across. I mean, one of the one of the things I'm, I struggle with is actually finding decent statistics about uh, cannabis use in Australia, yeah. uh, to be quite honest. Yeah. And, and when we start looking at, um, you know, attributable deaths and all that kind of stuff, the problem is, is that in many instances, cannabis might have been found in the bloodstream, but so was about two or three other cocktails of, of you know, prescription or other illicit drugs. So to, be act- to, to actually just sit there and strip all of those other confounders away, the other variables, and just be able to point a finger at cannabis is actually quite difficult um, with what's currently available. And, I, I, you know, I think the, um, that debate about uh, whether people can, can grow uh, plants uh, for themselves or not, I think, you know, that's an interesting one. And what you raise about hydroponics, I think, is also a very important topic because you, you've got, um, you know, plants that are basically suspended in, in, a, in a growth medium and uh, that, that's not to say that people that really know what they're doing can't produce uh, plants of a very high quality because, of course, they can. But the reality is is that most of the people growing this are, are not botanists, they're not phytochemists, they're not uh, horticulturists, uh, and they don't understand the intricacies uh, and, and the potential problems because by using different chemicals, um, that's going to be taken up into the plant. and We don't necessarily know the long-term effects of what that can do to our physiologies. I think you can bet your bottom dollar, though, that if it's an illegal substance, that it's going to be quick, pump this out quickly and make it grow. So they're going to use any means possible to lace it. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I guess um, lacing is an interesting term, too, because a lot of the time that term's used where they actually put a different drug in with another drug. Um, and, and that's sometimes... Uh, I guess, uh, a bit of a confusion, but they use a lot of the different nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus and things like that to bring out the different uh, flowering and leafing stages. Yep. And I think that they're, um, they're largely safe, but when they start putting different growth hormones and, and all that kind of stuff yeah, in there, that's, that's what where, I was we, we, uh, yeah, I think we need to be concerned about that, that's for sure. Yeah. So, okay, so that, that therefore, I guess, opens up the, the issues that um, medicos might have with growing cannabis. So given that they're going to want a regulated environment, mm-hmm. there was some proposition that uh, the administration should be limited to just vaping. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you go through the, the, the usefulness of that and, and if there's any issues with it? Is, is that well, a look, reasonable think- way of restricting use to a, a standardised form, if, I like, if you like to sort of use that term? No, I think it's completely myopic, to be quite honest, mate. I mean, what, what they're not understanding is that the dosage form is actually a critical component uh, when it comes to the, the efficacy of this plant. It's not just about getting the, the, right, uh, you know, the right strain with the right chemistry for the right patient. It's actually choosing that right dosage form. So sitting there and saying that only people can vape a certain cannabis and that's it, um, vaping is, of course, uh, very useful. Um, it's not combustible, so you're not getting a lot of the other combustible irritants that can cause inflammation or irritation to the upper respiratory tract. Um, it allows for very quick and direct uh, crossing uh, of the blood-brain barrier. Generally, after inhalation of, of uh, the vaped product, it's, it's 30 seconds to a minute to maybe two minutes tops before you're starting to get the uh, uh, reaction uh, or, or therapeutic response. But the problem with this is that it's very short-lived. Uh, and so that's why I say it's myopic. It's right. they're, they're not actually they're not actually understanding that this is a one size fits all approach. Right. I think it certainly has a place, and I think that for people that um, a lot of people use that in a day to day basis. So if they get a bit of a flare up or they're getting they're experiencing a little bit more pain than normal, they can use those uh, vaping or even just regular smoking uh, to get a very quick onset of action and, and get therapeutic relief. But most people that are suffering from chronic uh, intractable pain and, and other uh, you know, chronic conditions generally utilize a lot of ingestible products mm. um, because it actually uh, has a longer uh, onset uh, of action. It takes a little bit longer to kick in, but it actually has a much uh, longer duration of effect. So it gives them much uh, longer therapeutic coverage. And I think that they need to have all um, major uh, dosage forms, everything from you know, smoking, vaping, uh, tinctures, uh, uh, infused oils, uh, you know, uh, edibles and those types of things, uh, all the way through to, uh, uh, you know, um, maybe even suppositories. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different ways, but we need to understand that that dosage form is absolutely critical. And so just limiting it to one 
um, I think is uh, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Moving on to other myths and misconceptions, can cannabis lower IQ? <laughs> That's a really interesting one. I get I get asked that one quite a bit, particularly not surprisingly from students. Um, but but yeah, look, the, when we start looking at IQ, you know, the old intelligence quotient, um, a standardised test uh, for. for uh, intelligence scale. So, what are some of the ones that we use, like the, the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale and the Stanford Binet? Um, it's long been espoused, and I think wrongly, I might add, that cannabis uh, use reduces human IQ, and and largely this was because they thought it kills brain cells. Um, so, just one thing, I guess, before I, I'll, I'll answer this fully, is there's a there's a great um, uh, cannabis practitioner over in the United States. His name's uh, Dr. Sulak, and he's a research chairman for the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. He actually uh, put out a little uh, article not too long ago, which attempted to dispel a lot of the inaccuracies around cannabis. And I use that as a uh, kind of a, a, a baseline for the discussion of this topic. And as you do, you know, I, I hit the literature to, to validate a lot of what was being said. And a lot of the what I found in the evidence actually shocked me, um, because when it comes to these myths and misconceptions, uh, when viewed from a current scientific basis, um, that you know, it's it's all about education, and we've got to educate ourselves to what the the actual facts that exist out there are. So, I mean, when we look at uh, that that concept of IQ, it's uh, no, it doesn't. You know, they, they've said in the past that it destroys and kills neurons. Um, and I guess what we need to say here is that consumption of particularly certain varieties of cannabis, those that are particularly generally are a little bit higher, maybe in THC, uh, can indeed cause uh, a decreased function in short-term memory. Um, generally, what they found in studies is that the changes are not permanent um, and they resolve with cessation. So it's not actually a permanent damage whatsoever. Um, so, you know, obviously, as a rule of thumb, might not be the best idea to use this as a study aid. Um, but they've gone on to do other studies. And I think you'll appreciate this study. They found a, a review of two longitudinal twin studies. You know, twin studies are really, really great because we're able to separate a lot of other variables, uh, particularly genetic. Um, and so it was conducted by Jackson and colleagues, uh, and I think it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, earlier this year. And basically it found that cannabis using twins failed to show any significantly greater uh, IQ decline relative to their abstinent siblings. So the conclusion that they drew from that was suggestive, you know, that uh, those observed declines uh, in IQ are, are probably more attributable to things like uh, familial uh, or other environmental factors. So, I mean, from a phytochemical perspective, um, the compounds within cannabis have actually been found to be neuroprotective uh, and even neuroregenerative. I mean, in vitro and animal studies uh, have demonstrated uh, certain cannabinoids uh, in cannabis, particularly uh, cannabidiol, so your CBD, uh, can reduce damage to the brain, uh, particularly caused by hypoxia or ischemia, uh, so that lack of blood flow or oxygen supply, uh, and also assist in preventing neurological degeneration uh, in certain conditions like Alzheimer's and, and multiple sclerosis. Um, recent research out of the States is also suggesting it can be quite useful for um, uh, athletic traumatic brain injury, you know, like uh, constant concussions and, mm. and things like that. So um, I, I just think that, yeah, the uh, more research needs to be done. But I think based on the phytochemistry uh, and the available evidence uh, and that uh, twin longitudinal study that uh, I don't think we need to be as uh, worried about cannabis lowering IQ. Where I do want to put a caveat in here, though, uh, because I think this is very important in the interest of balance, is we do need to be a little bit concerned about that with a developing brain. So in the ch in children, in the young, um, we do need to actually be uh, a little bit more wary uh, about this. In, in adults, when their neuroplasticity and things like that has largely been formed, uh, you know, that's what most of this uh, evidence is based on. But we don't actually have many long, uh, you know, uh, conducted studies mm. uh, or well-conducted studies on how particularly things like THC might affect the developing brain. So it's it's something that we need to do more research in. And I think that uh, as clinicians uh, uh, and researchers would probably be quite uh, cautious moving uh, you know, with that kind of research. CBD, I doubt, would be as problematic. Um, but uh, certainly we don't, until we know, it's probably not a bad idea to be a little bit cautious about it. 
What's been the experience of those countries that have legalised cannabis? And the reason I ask this question is because you get two juxtaposed opinions. So I'll read something that um, uh, this is from ibtimes.com. Crime has gone up in Denver by 44% since 2012, according to the National Incident-Based Reporting System, a counting method that has been criticised by police for exaggerating numbers. The FBI estimates that crime has gone up by closer to 3.5% in the same period. So 44% down to 3.5%. Regardless of which system is used, marijuana-related offences accounted for 05 to 1% of all crime. So that's one. And the other one was... Colorado's crime, this was from AmericanThinker.com, Colorado's crime rate was declining, dot, 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 until they legalized marijuana. So it seems there's this juxtaposed viewpoint of crime caused by marijuana. What's the truth? Well, I mean, look, I've, most of the statistics that I've come across and people that, you know, I know a lot of people that live over in, in Colorado that, uh, have first-hand experience of this, and most of them are actually saying that it seems that uh, crime is down. But I think we need to look at this um, from a, from a little bit further back. I mean, if you have a drug that is illegal, uh, people will do things to get access to it. Yeah. So here we have a, a state that's actually legalized it, and you can just show your ID, be 21 years of age or older, and go in and use it. So I think that that the, the statistics that are quoted by the police are probably uh, quite accurate in that, well, I don't need to go and break the law to, to get this. And so therefore I feel comfortable. I don't feel threatened. I don't have to, you know, there's no shadiness about it. It is actually legal. So I think a lot of that uh, social uh, crime around it uh, has probably declined. Where things like that second statistic that you probably come in to talk about might actually be because there's not a great deal of regulation around who grows it and supplies it. Um, so that's when you start getting a lot of competition um, and, you know, different strains and, and people that are or different companies that are getting involved and they're trying to take market share. Um, and, and, and let's be honest with you, this is very big money. Uh, there's, there's, you know, huge money in this. It's funding schools and road development right throughout Colorado, uh, you know, from taxation on it. But the, the people and the players uh, that are in the background growing and supplying all of this, it's still uh, a business. Uh, and I think that that might actually be uh, one of the problems there is that, uh, you know, healthy competition uh, is, is maybe not being deemed uh, as uh, uh, important uh, for a successful business model. So I think they need to be kind of looked at uh, uh, separately. I'm wondering if I might need to clarify a point for our listeners, and that is we are not suggesting to legalise marijuana so that it is freely available like tobacco or alcohol. We are talking about medicinal use of cannabis, correct? Mm-hmm. Indeed. And so in these countries that have quote-unquote legalised cannabis, they're legalising it for medicinal use. They're not legalising it for recreational use. Well, in some of them they are. I mean, if you really? go over to, yeah, yeah, over in the Netherlands, uh, you don't need to, uh, you know, anyone that's gone to Amsterdam would know that quite well, and I believe Portugal is much the same. So it's not just for medicinal use at all. It's actually uh, socially legalised. And they're not seeing an increase in crime rate even from recreational users. Not that I've not that I've seen in any of the statistics so far. That does, I mean, of course, there's a wide range of them out there, and I've only read a small amount. So gotcha. um, as a as a caveat, but yeah, I think uh, um, they do well to uh, implement uh, other strategies to be able to try and mitigate some of those uh, what they might perceive as increased risk factors. Two quick questions: mm-hmm. What are the what's the link between cannabis and lung cancer? And are there any other harmful or toxic issues with regards to cannabis that we need to be aware of? You know, that, that's interesting one. Um, that smoking, as far as it causes lung cancer, I mean, there was a, I think there was a large study done in about 2006 by uh, Hushabay, um, and and he basically showed, uh, or they showed that um, heavy cannabis users have an equal or lower rate of lung and respiratory tract cancers than non-users. Uh, even though cannabis smoke has been proven to contain potentially cancer-causing products uh, based largely on combustion. So what we're talking about there is just, you know, smoking a joint or or hitting the pipe, so to speak. So, you know, when we start to consider how is that possible, they basically think that 
there are therapeutic substances in cannabis um, that might also have strong anti-cancer properties that therefore mitigate that. So um, there was another study, I think it was in 75. So we're going back a long time mm. um, uh, by Munson that was actually uh, dis- discussing the anti-neoplastic activity of cannabinoids. And that was in the journal of the National Cancer Institute. So, you know, it's been known since the, the 1970s, but more recently, cannabinoids have become a major focus of of the pharmaceutical industry's anti-cancer drug development as well. And down in LA, um, I believe his name's uh, Dr. Donald Tashkin. He he works out of the uh, UCLA, the um, University of California of Los Angeles, uh, or, or University College down there. Yep. Um, and he led research in the field uh, of cannabis and its association, particularly with lung cancer. And he could not actually find any direct association. So. He actually published a paper in the American Thoracic Journals, I think it was 2012 or 2013, mm. uh, that suggested that the accumulated weight of evidence implies you know, far lower risks of pulmonary complications, so including other pulmonary diseases like emphysema, so not just to do with cancer, um, huh. and that uh, it, was, it was even heavy use of cannabis compared with uh, the pulmonary consequences of tobacco, but yeah, yeah. he did he did point out that you know long term chronic cannabis use can increase risk of something like chronic bronchitis uh, because you know as we know um, due to epithelial ciliary loss um, and it does impair the uh, the microbiome you know the uh, antibacterial or, or uh, antimicrobial action of the alveolar macrophages um, it usually subsides with cessation of use just like normal smoking so while smoking cannabis is unlikely to cause cancer based on some of these papers. It can, of course, irritate the respiratory tract, um, particularly in you know sensitive individuals. Um, but you know, generally, most patients and responsible adult cannabis users are actually turning to non-smokable delivery methods anyway. So, I mean, the vaporizers, like we talked about, allow for users to inhale just the, the terpenes and the cannabinoid component of the herb without any combustible material. So that's very safe. But then you've also got those tinctures and liquid extracts and uh, and capsules and other and other forms that are, uh, you know, uh, there to reduce pain and inflammation. So it's it's definitely not as much of a problem. But I think in Australia, this is kind of interesting. Um, at least in my experience, we uh, we have this kind of interesting cult of uh, putting tobacco with cannabis for mm. smoking. Mm. You know, so uh, mulling up, so to speak. And and, and this is. Um, I think its own potential problems, considering tobacco is, is a proven carcinogenic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and therefore, we could actually start seeing skewed results uh, and, and potentially increased risk. But yeah. I, th- I think at the end of the day, the, the debate uh, also boils down to the quality of the cannabis uh, being used, because researchers need to understand that most of these statistics that have been generated over the last 20 or 30 years or even 50 years um, are strains directly bred to be higher in THC and, and using less than desirable growing techniques. So, you know, we're, we're basically just talking again about uh, recreational uh, and illicit cannabis and, and not the specific growing medicinal cannabis strains that are grown to incredibly high quality standards. So, you know, who knows what the implications for dumping all sorts of hormones and other things into the plant might have on the lungs uh, or, you know, or the impact of human physiology. So do you think, just as a wrap-up comment, that the real hurdle here for true compassionate use of medicinal cannabis is that there needs to be some consensus as to the types and or ratios of actives in cannabis that are approved for one to various conditions. So there needs to be, oh, look, the problem is consensus. Is that the issue? Look, I think that's a really hard one because um, when we start looking at limiting, you know, phytochemicals or strains and things like that, we're really starting to reduce the uh, versatility, I think, of the ability for cannabis to be used therapeutically. Um, so, I mean, if we look at, uh, you know, one of the arguments uh, that I've heard in the past is, is why don't we just use you know, things like hemp that are high CBD and low THC, and, and then we don't have to worry about the psychoactivity whatsoever. And, and I think that they're, they're, they're missing the point. The, the point is, is that when we look at phytochemi- uh, the phytochemistry of cannabis, so phytochemicals like your delta-9 THC, uh, the metabolite of that, which is 11-hydroxy-delta-9 THC, so this is actually converted within the liver. It's, it's a lot stronger uh, and more potent uh, and generally has a little bit longer uh, activity. Uh, even delta-8 THC, these are the products 
um, within the plant that are considered psychoactive. Yeah. Um, you know, they make the, the user feel high or stoned. And so a lot of people that just sit there will just get rid of it. You know, that's, that's, that's the thing. But, you know, psychoactivity just uh, by definition, remember, uh, is a substance that changes or alters brain function uh, and basically will, will alter your perception, mood, or consciousness. Okay. So if we take that argument and say just use narrow leaf drug varieties that are rich in CBD and, and much lower in THC, you know, less than 0.3%, um, you know, what we basically commonly call hemp, um, they're, they're still incredibly useful medicines. Um, they don't necessarily engage with the CB1 receptor as much in the central nervous system uh, like THC does. Um, and that's why a lot of people will prefer to use those apparent non-psychoactive strains during the day uh, to assist in, you know, managing their condition. And so they don't feel stoned and then they'll actually have the stronger analgesic pain-relieving activity of the THC-rich strains to get them through uh, their nighttime sleep, particularly if they're having trouble with pain. So I think when we, when we think about that definition of psychoactivity, um, remembering that it is anything that can uh, cause a perception, uh, change in perception, mood, or consciousness, case study evidence is actually showing that things like CBD-rich strains uh, that are low in THC are beneficial in addressing anxiety and depression, mm. which are both characterized as mood disorders. So yeah, yeah. my question then is, is CBD a psychoactive substance by definition? So it's just something that the cannabis research community, you know, needs to discuss, I think, in a little bit more earnestness. Um, as we're commonly seeing hemp growers using the CBD as non-psychoactive argument in trying to stack or persuade, you know, certain strain selection for medicinal use and, and somewhat vilifying THC because of the apparent difference. Um, and whilst I certainly wholeheartedly agree that THC is far more psychoactive and psychotropic, um, I merely, you know, want to want to bring this up as a uh, discussion uh, for for review because the problem is is that a lot of the people in the public uh, and even in scientific circles and the government perceive that THC is a dangerous component uh, and as such, you know, should not be used therapeutically. Mm. And I think and I think nothing could be further from the truth, quite frankly. I mean. THC is the main constituent involved in sedation, pain-relieving activity, muscle relaxing activity. Um, and, and interestingly, this was just published this week, um, there was a study published in Nature, the journal Nature, no less, uh, in Aging and Mechanisms of Disease, um, that shows that uh, you know, cannabinoids have a potential benefit in Alzheimer's disease. Right. So I think the paper, the, the paper actually stated that THC reduced inducible uh, Huntington overexpression in certain cells, um, that THC and other endocannabinoids reduce inflammation, and that several synthetic and plant-derived and, and also our own endogenous cannabinoids are able to actually prevent the accumulation of intraneuronal beta amyloid, you know, therefore reducing the production of, of um, uh, icosanoids uh, and, 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 and therefore block inflammation and, and stop nerve cell death. So it's, it's completely plausible um, that THC could actually be uh, a useful treatment for AD in the future. So I think we need to to look at this evidence again in in light of this topic because it's 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 just one of those things that I feel that um, if we limit strain selection, if we limit uh, to certain conditions, and I think that that's another problem in and of itself. If we sit there and say that only only children with pediatric intractable epilepsy are going to be allowed to use this. What about all the adults with epilepsy? Yeah. What about all of the yeah. what about all of the children that are actually suffering side effects? Their epilepsy might be well controlled, but they're getting side effects of the AEDs, uh, and and therefore are not going to be a benefit to this potential medicinal kind of scheme. What about the patients with intractable pain that doesn't actually have a diagnosis? So if they're going to sit there and just say, well, you can have it for multiple sclerosis, and you can have it for, um, you know, your your epilepsy, and you can use it for chemotherapy-induced nausea, and you might be able to use it for, for all of these other, you know, specified conditions. I actually think that's a little bit, again, um, short-sighted. I think we need to to actually include symptoms right. in this discussion. I think that symptomatic management of various things is where cannabis will shine through. I mean, what what is it? It's anticonvulsant, uh, pain, you know, for pain management, analgesic, sedation. Uh, all of these types of things reducing spasticity and multiple sclerosis. So I think that they should actually broaden that scope and not actually limit it to certain conditions, um, but actually use it for uh, approved 
uh, non-responsive uh, symptoms as well. And, and I think that that is far more compassionate uh, than actually just sitting there saying, uh, I need this diagnosis. Um, because what if they got the diagnosis wrong? Yeah. I just want to wrap up this podcast with a quote from, now this is the tdpf.org.uk. I'll put, we'll put the website up on fxmedicine.com.au. But this is headed Drug Decriminalisation in Portugal, Setting the Record Straight, published 11th of June 2014. Portugal decriminalised the possession of all drugs for personal use in 2001, and there now exists a significant body of evidence on what happened following the move. Moving on to the next paragraph. The reality is that Portugal's drug situation has improved significantly in several key areas. Most notably, HIV infections and drug-related deaths have decreased, while the dramatic rise in use feared by some has failed to materialise. It's, it's, it goes on. So it's an interesting read, but I think it at least partly explains these fears away um, and that it also needs to be covered by much wider social implications. I completely agree. And I think, you know, the, the medicinal cannabis debate and the social use of cannabis are obviously two very separate things. And, um, you know, my main interest obviously is, is just in, in medicinal cannabis use for, for therapeutic applications. But what you generally find is in states that it, it may have been uh, medicinally viable, they generally do start to move towards uh, decriminalization and legalization uh, as well. So I think what we need to do is just, you know, start looking at these countries that have implemented these types of systems, particularly from a public health point of view. Look, look and take that because the, the, the problem I find with having this discussion with academics or medicos uh, or researchers in Australia is that no one has direct experience. Yeah. No one has direct experience of using medicinal cannabis. No one will admit to you that they've used it recreationally. And no one's actually gone and looked at the statistics um, that exist over in other countries because, you know, it, it might not correlate with what the, the argument that they're trying to display is. And the, the reality is, is that if we've got experience in other countries, let's look to that. Let's look at those statistics and let's see how that might apply uh, to Australia and the Australian model, uh, particularly in you know, just trying to reduce the uh, scaremongering uh, and, and, and ease the, you know, uh, don't, don't scare the horses, so, uh, so to speak, uh, when it comes to the medicos and, and public health officials and politicians. Justin, I love your mind and I love the compassion that you have for patients in need. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Always a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks again. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Nominations are now open for the 2017 Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards, the Beamers. As healthcare practitioners, we care for our patients and while our therapies can have a major impact on them, there are few opportunities for us to celebrate our success stories as a profession. Now is the time to have your contribution to integrative healthcare recognised. There are many different categories and as usual, great prizes to be won. For more information, go to the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au.